the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is a former Division I athlete who is currently a doctoral student at the University of Texas and the author of a debut novel called... Surviving the Second Tier. Her name is M.K. Lever. She joins me by phone. Hi, M.K. Uh, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me. Um, let me let me ask, <clears throat> is it just simply that old adage, write what you know, that led you to make your your first foray out into writing a novel about sports? It's so funny because my boyfriend is currently reading the book right now, and he's like, I see some similarities between you and the main character here, Katie. And I was like, well, I was just told to write what I know. So I was following you know, the basic <laughs> creative writing advice. So I, I, I'm justifying it. I'm like, it's not about me. It's just what I know. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> but were there things that you experienced um, as a Division One athlete that you especially wanted to point at in the book? Yes, I, like, I, I mean, absolutely. And, and those experiences are things that also shape my research. Um, but, you know, a lot of people have great experiences in college sports. Um, but a huge issue that I see, a couple of issues that I've seen and experienced are one, um, health, there are a lot of issues with healthcare in college sports, like athletes have injuries and they don't want to lose their scholarship, so they have to push through it. And they also are very driven to win, you know, and so it creates this culture of really ignoring your pain and being tough and just gutting things out. Um, so I definitely wanted to write about that in the context of college sports and all the power dynamics that go into that. Um, another big issue in the college sports industry right now that I also experienced is um, being in an abusive coaching relationship. Um, you know, I had coaches who would try to, you know, coerce me to, to get me to train through injuries. Um, they would tell me things like, you know, your teammate is training with a grade three hamstring tear, so you don't have an excuse or that I needed to toughen up and stop being selfish. And just the mind games. And again, like those power imbalances and dynamics that are involved there, um, because one of the big, big areas of my research is that um, I, I look into sports law and policy to try to figure out how we can improve these things to protect college athletes and healthcare and and protections from abuse are very much lacking um, when it comes to sports policy in the NCAA. MK, when you say the word abuse. The first thing that people think about is 
the sexual abuse scandals that we've seen in the last, what, two or three years. Yeah. And you're talking about something else. Something else that's something that has a similar dynamic to it. So, and you're absolutely right. When a lot of people think of abuse, um, they think of physical abuse, or in the context of sports, they're probably thinking about, you know, the Larry Nasser um, exactly. trial and everything. Yeah, and, and that's recently come back into the news as well. Um, and there are a lot of different types of relational abuse, not just in college sports, but just in any kind of relationship where there's a power imbalance present. Um, and I don't want to get too long-winded with this. Um, but a, a big problem with these with the relationships between athletes and coaches, or even in the Larry Nasser case with athletes and trainers, is there is a huge um, gap in in power. So, you know, trainers and coaches they have resources that athletes need. Um, in the case of the Larry Nasser scandal, they needed treatment from him, um, and he had a very charismatic presence. He had a lot of that relational power with them, and so he used that to abuse those gymnasts. Um, in the context of, of collegiate sports, I know Larry Nasser was also at MSU, but with, you know, with coaches and athletes, those coaches have scholarships. That, that the athletes need. A lot of those aren't guaranteed for four years. Um, so they have scholarships. They might have professional connections. You know, if an athlete is trying to go pro, they have their draft status to think about. And so there are these resources that coaches have. Um, sometimes they can use like playing time and, and, and access to, to the team and to, to the trainer and things like that also. But, um, you know, for me, I was very concerned about losing my scholarship. And so, you know, I remember my first year of college running I was a runner in college I um, finished up a, a, like a conference race at the end of the season and my coach basically told me you know it wasn't good enough and, and that this was my warning year and if I wanted to keep my scholarship I would have to do better next year and so from the very first year of my um, college experience I had coaches you know feeding into that mindset of they have something that I need and if I'm not you know, on the ball all of the time that I'm risking losing that. Um, and then as my career progressed, I started to become a better runner. I, w I was competitive in the conference. I was on the cusp of being nationally competitive. Um, and then I started to get injured. And that was when coaches would say things like, um, like I mentioned earlier, I had teammates that were injured and they would be like, oh, well, you know, what's your excuse? Why aren't you, you know, training as hard? Um I also had coaches, you know, imply that I was being selfish by not being there for the team and training. Um, you know, I had coaches tell me that I needed to just be tough. I needed to gut it out. And so all of these things really, like all the things that they were telling me, it really nurtured this mindset of like, I am not good enough. I need to, you know, continually push myself through this really intense pain to make my coaches happy. And if I don't do that, then I'm a bad person. I'm lazy and I'm selfish and I'm all of these things that my coaches are telling me that I am. Um, and then also, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, and I could lose my scholarship on top of all of this. Um, so, you know, to I guess to answer your question, abusive coaching and, you know, like what Larry Nasser did, um, there are a lot of overlaps in the type of power that they wield. The way that they exercise that over athletes might just be a little bit different, but the power imbalance is where that abuse stems from. You know, as you were talking about coaches pushing you through injury, 
I could hear my dad, who was very old school, yeah. you know, saying, saying, walk it off. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just heard his voice say, walk it, walk it off. Whenever you twisted an ankle or skinned a knee or stubbed a toe. Yeah, rubbed always, on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just walk it off. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and I, I could almost hear that voice as you were talking about some of these, uh, some of these coaches and, um, and, and the way they push athletes through injury is it how much of it is the coaches saying wonk it off and how much of it is the athletes athletes hiding injury for some of the reasons that you pointed out fear of losing scholarships and and uh, losing uh, standing in uh, competitions and so on yeah, that it really depends, I think, on the coach. Cause, because another thing, too, is that, you know, athletes are very, very driven to perform through pain. Um, and so part of the reason that athletes do train through injuries can be intrinsically motivated. Um, what, what When it becomes problematic is when, because, I mean, you know, if the coach tells you to, to walk it off, like if you're a softball player, for example, and you get hit by a pitch and the coach says walk it off, that's not – an abusive dynamic, right? Um, like that's just a part of the game of softball. But you know, if if you are like when I was in college, I was dealing with just chronic hip and hamstring and 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 all kinds of lower body injuries um, from from overtraining. And I think what made that a different dynamic was I was in pain. I was making my injury worse, and my coaches were telling me that this was what I had to do to not be a uh, to not be a selfish person. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's a difference in intent there. And I think there's also sort of a difference in, in consent there as well on behalf of the athlete, because the softball player who gets hit by a pitch, they're going to want, you know, to be in the rest of the game because that's not a life altering injury. It's not a chronic thing. Whereas, you know, in my case, I feel like there wasn't as much consent on my behalf because it was something I felt like I had to do. Um, and I, I was doing it even though I, I was asking not to, and, and my body was telling me like, Hey, you shouldn't be doing this. So I think so much of this is contextual and, and complicated. Um, and a lot of it can really be boiled down to the individual athlete and, and the case that we're looking at. How did you end up deciding to write the book? Yeah, it was actually because of my research. Um, so I do a lot of, of policy research, and I think it's really exciting. Um, but a lot of people don't think that policy is really exciting. <laughs> um, and it can be it can be dry to, you know, thumb through a, a policy manual or a bill or a law, but I, I absolutely love it. And I think that so many issues in college sports really um, – they really stem from these bad policies. And so I'm always really excited to talk about it when people ask me about my research. But my problem was I would just go into those conversations and dive just headfirst into like the NCAA's Division One manual, for instance. And so I noticed that people's eyes would kind of glaze over and I was like, oh, I'm boring them by talking about policy like this. Um, but the issues were so important that I wanted to keep talking about it. And so I started to describe the NCAA as a dystopia 
Um, and, and people really like that metaphor. Like they would be engaged with the conversation and be like, oh, tell me more. And so it became just a good gateway to talking about my, my research that might be, you know, a little bit less exciting otherwise. And so I started using the metaphor a lot and, and it just stuck with me and it stuck with other people. And so, and, and honestly, like when I look at the NCAA and these elements of control and coercion, um, and, and, and all kinds of other elements that are also in dystopian novels that I love, I, I started to see the correlation, you know, in, in, in what I wanted to do with that metaphor. And so I was like, I should write this book, um, you know, just to like keep myself, just to keep myself sane because, because, you know, at that time I was like, I have this world, I have these characters. And if I don't get them out of my head, then I'm just not going to sleep at night. Like it's going to drive me nuts. Um, and so I just started working at it, like maybe a paragraph at a time or so, just whenever I had time to write. And it, about a year into it, a little less than a year into it, I was like, I have 90 pages. So this is a real manuscript. And um, I'd never intended on, on actually writing it or actually publishing it. But here we are. Did you find that that um, you preferred to tell a story than sharing your data? Yeah, I I think that there's a time and a place for both. Um, I do think that stories tend to be more persuasive with people, um, you know, because like I mentioned earlier, I, I can, you know, give them the policy and give them the hard facts and, and people may or may not be interested in that. But when I tell them, you know, my story or when I tell them stories that I read in the news, that's what honestly changes people's minds the most is that personal connection. Um, and, and we don't see that a lot with athletes. We don't see athletes being humanized a lot in the media. We look at th them in terms of their, you know, statistics or their salaries, and we, we sort of dehumanize them as consumers. Um, and so I wanted to make my book more personal, and I think storytelling is just the perfect vehicle for that. Um, MK, I have to take a break here in about a minute. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Yeah, sure thing. Excellent. My guest is um, MK Lever, and she is a uh, doctoral student at the University of Texas and former Division I athlete who has written a novel called Surviving the Second Tier. It's her debut novel, and we're going to talk to her some more about that and um, and whether or not she has the bug for writing and uh, and find out what's, uh, what's coming up down the road. In the meantime, if you're listening to us on uh, WFOVLP, Our Voices Radio 92.1 FM in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Hearing. And we're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We're going to be back and talk some more about um, the NCAA and the book uh, by M.K. Lever called Surviving the Second Tier. So stay tuned. Lots more of the Tom Sumner program is, uh, well, it's straight ahead. 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the author of a new book called Surviving the Second Tier, M.K. Lever. M.K., welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no problem. Um, what do you mean in the title, Surviving the Second Tier? Yeah, so a couple of things. So I think you know, the term surviving has a lot of different connotations for different people. It just has, it differs in meaning. I think when we think surviving, we think of, you know, food, clothing, and shelter. Um, but I, I also think, you know, there are people who are surviving systems. There are people who are surviving, um, you know, bad uh, relationships. There are people who are um, just trying to survive making it to the next place in their life or their career. And I think, with you know with college sports i think that there are some people who are um you know they're just trying to get through like they see their scholarship as a way to a a degree and a way out of you know maybe a rough home situation so there are lots of different types of survival that i think are inherent to um not only just to the college sports industry but just to you know the people who have jobs and who, you know, we're trying to make it, I think, um, you know, survival is, is just a really human experience for a lot of people. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, a lot of college athletes do. They're trying to survive and make it to the next level of their lives. Um, as far as the second tier, um, something that I see a lot in my research is we have a lot of different Um, like conversations and lots of articles about college athletes. And a lot of these um, college athletes who are featured in the news or who are talked about more broadly, they're in what are called the Power Five conferences. For anyone who's not familiar with the Power Fives, they're the biggest conferences in the NCAA. That's where, you know, like the Alabamas and the LSUs and the Oklahomas, those are the conferences where all of those big schools are. Um, and what we see less of is we see less of the mid-major side of college sports, so that second tier of collegiate athletics. And that was where I, I competed as a college athlete. I was at Western Kentucky University, which is a mid-major school in Southern Kentucky. And then when I moved to Texas, which is a Power 5 school, I saw the differences in facilities and in resources, and it was just a completely different world than this smaller school that I came from. But what I think is is interesting across the entire college sports industry is that there are issues that affect, you know, those power five athletes that also affect the mid-major athletes. And so there's just a lot of overlap in in the the systemic problems that college athletes face. And I wanted to capture that, but I wanted to tell it from the perspective of an underdog rather than the more mainstream stories that we see more commonly. How much of this book um, was was became a a uh, project born out of quarantine and the pandemic? This book kept me sane during quarantine. It was it was a godsend. <laughs> I had <laughs> a feeling. I mean, yeah, well, because it it was so interesting because during the pandemic, 
you know, I was I was teaching a public speaking class and I was also taking classes as a grad student. Um, and so the pandemic hit and we just went online overnight. And I still had work to keep me busy. But what I didn't have as much um, was, was other outlets, like my gym closed down. And so I was having to like, you know, go for walks and runs and I wasn't giving, getting the kinds of workouts that I was used to. I couldn't see my friends. And so I didn't have a lot of outlets outside of work. And so this, this book, cause I was finishing my final edits in quarantine, this book um, and, and the copywriting process was a, an absolute godsender in quarantine. Cause it gave me something to keep my mind off of, of everything that was going on and all of that uncertainty. So my copywriter and I, we really, really bonded during quarantine because we both had this project that we really cared about and that was giving us some kind of meaning and a, a reason to get up and work every day um, on something that, you know, was, was creative. And, and honest, uh, like, honestly, it was a fun process to write the book. It was a lot of work. Um, book writing is it was so much longer of a process than I thought it would be. Um, but I, and I was so thankful to have this as a project to work on during quarantine. Now that you've been through the process, do you think it would be as cumbersome if you were to, uh, write, write another book and, and do you have the bug? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would love to write more books. I, I'd love to turn my dissertation into a book. So that's a whole other project. I'd also like to write a sequel for this one. Um, and just, you know, knowing what I know now, I think knowledge is always power. And so if you can go through a process and learn something from it, if you need to ever repeat that process, you'll just be, you know, you'll be more prepared, you'll feel more confident. And so going into my next book, um, I know that I'm, I'm going to feel better about the process having been through it already. Now, this is being called, of course, your, your debut novel, but have you done writing before? I have. I'm I'm a freelance sports writer, and I've published academically as well. And where would uh, where would people see some of your writing? Um, I primarily write for a company called Twoadays.com, um, and we're an online resource for prospective and current college athletes to learn more about. Um, like NCAA policy and recruiting tips and just all kinds of educational resources for them. We also have a coach ratings tool um, where anonymous athlete, athletes can go back and rate their coaches uh, based on their college experience. So anyone coming into college sports can see these ratings and they're verified as well, but they can see these ratings and see like, oh, this coach only has two stars. Why is that? And so they can get a better feel for um, what they're getting themselves into. And I've also been published in um, Sportico and Global Sports Matters, um, which is an affiliate from Arizona State, um, Forbes Fan Cited, and Extra Points, which is one of my favorite sports newsletters. Um, Matt Brown is, is, is the guy who writes that. And so if anyone needs a good sports newsletter, um, Extra Points is really great. That's, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> And what is it that you are studying for your doctoral thesis? 
Yeah, so I'm looking at um, paternalism in college sports. I, I, I studied uh, rhetoric and, and language, and so I look a lot at public communication um, and how, like, the elements of, of persuasion and, and politics in them. Um, and, and so my dissertation is looking at how college athletes are infantilized and controlled by the language use of the NCAA. And then... Um what happens when you when you finish that do you then become a consultant do you write academic uh, literature on the subject what 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 lies ahead for mk that's a great question. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to put you on the spot mk. I'm just curious. Oh no, I've thought about it a lot. <laughs> So I'll be finishing up, hopefully this time next year, I'll be done if the dissertation goes the way that I want it to. Um, but I'd love to, I, I, I would love to be a consultant. I, I could, you know, branch off and go into journalism a little bit more um, as, as more of a full-time thing rather than a freelance thing. I'm looking a lot at academic careers too, because I, I have a big passion for teaching. I love, um, you know, teaching students about, about, um, the more complex sides of the sports they love. I taught a, a communication sports class last uh, semester that I really, really love to teach. Um, you know, so any kind of class where I can get into the more social issues of college sports and the political side and, and looking at athletes as people rather than just performers, um, I, I love teaching about that and writing about that. And, and so the academic route is definitely a possibility as well. So I'm trying to figure out where I want to land. <laughs> Well, getting back to your book, Surviving the Second Tier, um, without brushing into any spoiler alerts, can you give a, a brief sort of synopsis and let people know what to expect if they uh, sit down and, and uh, take a read? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Surviving the Second Tier is a dystopian novel about the college sports industry. Um, it takes place in the future where all of these athletic departments across the United States have, they've essentially gone bankrupt because they've been spending so much on recruiting and facilities and just trying to attract these top athletes. And so they've essentially pretty much gone under. Um, and so basically what happens is the governing body of college sports steps in and says, okay, we need to salvage this industry um, because it's very lucrative. Um, and so what they decide to do is they downsize the college sports industry into a single sport model. Um, and the sport that athletes all play now is fighting. And that's because it's something that it's glamorous and flashy and it's sellable um, it doesn't require as many facilities or officials, and, and so it's a cheaper option for this mass entertainment that's still, you know, violent and flashy and fun for consumers. Um, and so my, uh, my, my novel follows this second-tier team. We talked about, you know, the first-tier versus the second-tier, but they follow this second-tier team and, and specifically my protagonist, Sis, who um, she's the only undefeated fighter in the new NCAA essentially which is the amateur fighting association um, but she's only in the second tier and so there's a lot of argument about like oh is she really as good as, as everyone says because she's you know in this lower competition area um, she's dealing with a nagging shoulder injury that's threatening her career 
Um, she's dealing with these dynamics with her coach where he's pushing her too far because he also has to, you know, he also has to progress in his career. And so he's, he's sort of stepping on his athletes in order to get there. And then there's also a lot of relational tension and, and competitive, uh, competitiveness within the team that she's having to deal with as well. And so it just follows them throughout their season as they're on the brink of, of graduating and making it out into the real world and everything that they have to sacrifice in order to get there. What do you think about some of the conversations that have been uh, uh, starting to erupt about compensation for college athletes? Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting conversation that I've been following a lot. Um, and there are two different trains of thought when it comes to compensation for college athletes. So there's, you know, the NIL conversation, which is, you know, college ath- athletes using third parties um, in order to make money. So they'll, you know, go on Instagram and sell products or, you know, they can start a small business or, or run a camp or something like that. And those are things that they previously weren't allowed to do. And then there's the other conversation about universities paying athletes directly. Um, and I am honestly, I, I'm a little bit radical here because I am pro both of those things, especially when you look at the revenue generating sport, and, and that's a contestable term, but I don't have time to get into that. But the revenue generating sports like football and men's basketball, and in some cases, women's basketball as well. Um, but you look at these these athletes who are generating millions and millions of dollars for the universities and they're they're getting a scholarship in return for that to me that doesn't seem fair um and there are a lot of implications that people are talking about you know like like title nine and and employee like employee status and what all that means um but i just think at a very basic level it's not fair to be generating that much money and to get so little in return it feels very exploitive um so yeah that that's a conversation that i've been traveling that I've been following a lot with my research, and it's very, very controversial. Do you, do you think that um, compensation for product endorsement is likely to happen first? Yes, yes, and we're already seeing that happening with athletes, you know, branching out on their own and using their brands. Um, and that was something the NCAA fought it for a long, long time. So a lot of people say like, oh, college athletes, like the NCAA just gave them rights. It's like, no, the NCAA has been fighting against that for decades. Um, but we're already seeing, you know, a bit of that with the NIL space. And I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. I, I do see, I don't think it's going to be as, as free flowing as it is right now, because there's not a ton of regulation around name, image, and likeness, but I could definitely see you know, the FTC coming in or Congress coming in and, and regulating it a bit more. Um, but I don't think that it's going to, you know, go away anytime soon, if ever. Is there a, uh, a dystopian future for, for col- college athletics? I think in a lot of ways, if the NCAA or, or Congress or somebody doesn't step in and take care of you know, things like health and safety and the abusive dynamics that we've been talking about. I mean, there will be more Larry Nassers if the NCAA doesn't step in and do something. So in a lot of ways, yes, I do think that there is a dystopic future for college sports if the NCAA or or lawmakers don't step in and do things to actually protect and help athletes. Now, with um, a lot of sports having gone by the wayside, what's... uh 
what are you likely to explore in a sequel? Ooh, that's a good question. I would love to to get into unionization in a fictional context um, because that Ooh. is another that is a, a conversation that is, is still developing and people have very strong opinions on it. It's one of those controversial ones that I could really get into, I think, in, in a book length project. Um, so I'd love to talk about, you know, to, to talk more about unionization and those hypotheticals and, you know, why people are against it and, and the sorts of, of struggles that um, arise when athletes don't have the uh, extent of rights that that they should be entitled to because when people think unionization they tend to think about like we were talking about direct compensation to athletes um but with with unions you know people forget that that workers can bargain for things like better health and safety initiatives um you know um uh, like in the context of college sports they could advocate to have more time to commit to their academics um they could you know advocate for protections against abusive coaching um they could they could ask for things like reduced practice time so that their injury risk is less so there are a lot of different um angles to union uh, unionization outside of just being compensated that i think are very important things to to talk about mk um I always like to give uh, guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? I do. My website is katielever.com. My real name is Mary Catherine, and we get Katie from that, um, which is also where we get MK. But it's K-A-T-I-E-L-E-V-E-R.com. I have a blog there and some personal writing um, I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. Um, my handle is Lever Fever, my last name followed by the word fever, um, because I went to college at the height of Bieber fever, and that's how the nickname <laughs> happened. Um, and then my book, uh, Surviving the Second Tier, you can find the purchase links in my social media bios, or you can also find it on Amazon if you just type in Surviving the Second Tier. It'll pop right up. Um have you started the the sequel, or are you still recoiling from finishing the first book? I actually have started writing the sequel because that was also sort of during quarantine, and I was like, I need another creative outlet now that I'm done with my first one. Um, but I very tentatively have started it. Um, I maybe have a few chapters, um, just, you know, very, very rough writing, but that is uh, in progress right now, so... Hopefully, you know, I'll be able to finish that one as well and, and, and write more books, get my dissertation out there and um, establish myself here, too, because I, I really book writing is hard, but it was such a rewarding process and I would do it again. Well, MK, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Tom. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. M.K. Lever, the author of Surviving the Second Tier. And we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
and that's a fact. Come on, pretty baby, tell me what you gonna do. I need something more than maybe, something more than a blue. Fighting crime. I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. 
East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball, or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop attorney generaling! We got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nussel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov ag. Put those away! We're at a gas station! What? 
This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I played football for Temple University, and it's the truth, see? Don't keep asking me, did you really play? Yes, I really played. At one time, I had a beautiful body. I weighed, uh, I weighed 192 pounds, and they made me a fullback. Now, before you start tuning up, let me get my story finished. <laughs> no, the truth of the matter is that uh, it didn't take much to play for t- Temple at the time that I was playing because we had lost 27 games in a row. And uh, we played against real weak teams. I mean, teams like uh, Muhlenberg, Lafayette, um, what's it, Gettysburg, yeah. Get- they all beat us. They all killed us, especially Hofstra. Hofstra beat us 900 or nothing in their street clothes, man. They wiped us out. You know? Vassar wouldn't even play us. That's how bad we were, man. Get out of here. We don't even want you on our schedule. So I'm going to give you some insight as to what goes on in the loser's locker room. We're going to play against Hofstra, which is a really terrible school. They killed us every year, boy. And when you play for a team like Temple, you got nothing to do except pace up and down in the locker room and you say to yourself, boy, I sure do hope I don't get hurt. (laughs) I almost made a tackle last week. I must have been crazy out there. Nobody else is trying out there. I don't know why I got to be the one all the time. I play on the second team, which is actually the nut squad. Now, these are guys that can play, but they're afraid. They don't want to go out there, so they do nutty things. Like they put the helmet on sideways, looking out through the ear hole. (laughs) Guys got on scuba diving suits, no shoe and an ice skate, you know, walking around. Second team is very quiet, because they're going to go out, scared to death. That's what they are. Catholics on the squad always seem to have something special going, because they're over in the corner. Domino's father, please, Domino's but I figure if it works for him, yeah, me too, Father. He's a friend of mine. He told me how to do this. Here, please accept me. Yeah, I'm pacing up and down. First team's getting last right. And we're warming. The coach is drawing trick plays on the blackboard because he has no personnel whatsoever and he knows he's got to work with something that'll trick him. You know. All right, you guys, listen up. Uh, when they come out of the huddle, line up backwards. <laughs> And just let them run right over you, and then we'll raise the flag and everything while you're singing the national anthem, all right? We'll get pity somewhere, I'll tell you that. Then comes the athletic director. says, I'd like to talk to the boys. What? I'd like to talk to the boys. Okay. May I have your attention, please, fellas? This is uh, the athletic director, Mr. Ernie Cassell. It's the man that's responsible for giving most of you the scholarships. He'd like to talk to you, Mr. Cassell. Thank you very much, Coach Macris. Well, boys, here we are again. We're going out to have another fine football game. I'm going to go out and play against Hofstra, because you already know that. You know, they beat us last year 900 to nothing. The year before that, they beat us 900 to nothing. I was over in their locker room, I had a chance to look at some of their players, and Christ, they're bigger than they were last year. (laughs) Yes, yes, I know, I know. (laughs) Fellas, I looked out in the stands, we only have 12 people out there. (laughs) And this is homecoming. (laughs) Just want to say a few words to you. This is our first game on television. 
We want to keep this television contract going because this is the only way we can make some money to buy a little scuba diving suits and uh, snowshoes and ice skates for all the weirdo squads here. So we're gonna say to you, please, remember that you're on TV. By that I mean, don't worry about winning the game as much as we want you to be concerned with the fact that while you're out there on the field, we're gonna ask you, please, do not touch certain areas of your bodies while you're out there on the football field. Because if you're out there digging and scratching, people at home are gonna turn you right off and we're gonna lose the contract. So please, do not touch certain areas of your bodies while you're out there on the field. Now we're gonna pass out these affidavits and ask you to sign them, saying that you will not touch certain areas of your bodies while you're out there on a football field, all right? So we signed them and we went out, you know, and I'm with the second team and <laughs> First team's got the ninth time for last right, Hofstra came out of the locker room. I had never seen guys so big before in my life. They had just brought 11 guys with them. Smallest guy on the squad was 6'1", 490 pounds. It was a halfback. Ran 109-1, had long teeth hanging out of his mouth. Every one of them just had one eye in the center of the forehead. The coach was beating them out onto the field with a ball and chain, hitting them smack in the back of the head. Get out of there! Go on, Igor. What's good, Igor? First team said, oh, God, don't look at him. If you don't look at him, you won't get scared. Second team went crazy. Guys are ripping their clothes off. I can't play naked. Can we get up now? No, you move, I'll punch you right in the mouth. So help me, get out of here. We carry him off, ready to All right, get out there, second team, let's go. <laughs> we got a quarterback that's 2-1. All right, run the kamikaze play on one. All right, kamikaze. Cosby up the middle, the whole team off the field. Break. We break out of the huddle, the quarterback goes up to shift. One, two, ping, gives me the ball. I take one step and I look and there's a hole. And I had never seen a hole <laughs> playing for Temple. And I said, God, a hole. <laughs> I turned to the people in the stand, look at this, a hole, you see this? Did you can't hurry up, run. I said, wait a minute, it may be a mirage. <laughs> you can't tell. I said, well, I better get moving, I'll never forget it. It was a big hole with a defensive man on the ground I planted one foot, stepped over him. When I did, he stood up and hit me. <laughs> and the pain was tremendous. And I threw down the ball and I said, oh. I've been hit in the... You'd better not touch any areas of your body while you're on the football here. So I grabbed my head. 
Oh, yes, it wouldn't matter. So I can't take nothing until they bring a commercial on, all right? Thank you. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 